Well, hey, good morning, Transit. How are we? We're good? Awesome. Well, hey, my name is uh, Nick. I'm the pastoral intern here at the church, and I'd like to start uh, the sermon out by uh, reading James 4, 1 through 10, out loud together. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the center aisle that you can uh, use. Uh, James 4 is near the back of your Bible, and then open up your Bibles. And if you don't have your Bible, we will have that verse on the screen for you as well. So here we go, James 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for your word and and how it teaches uh, of your beautiful uh, grace and mercy to an adulterous people, Lord. So, Holy Spirit, we pray you move in power this morning that you'd open our eyes uh, and our ears and our hearts to the words that you're going to speak this morning, Lord. And I pray up here that you would increase and I would decrease, Lord. We pray this in your beautiful son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, I want to start off my sermon this morning by asking you guys a question. And the question is this. Who here has taught somebody else to drive a car before? Anyone here taught someone else to drive a car? Yeah, how'd that go for you? (laughs) Clearly, clearly you're still here. So praise the Lord. That that went well. (laughs) Attaboy. We'll edit that out. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd just like to go on the record and publicly apologize to my mom and my dad for what I put them through when they were teaching me how to drive. Uh, both my mom and my dad, as, as I was learning how to drive, I had my learner's permit and whatnot, they were both kind of cool in the pocket, cool in the shotgun seat, and occasionally they would offer uh, a pleasant reminders, if you will, just a nice little word of wisdom, because sometimes that was needed, like, hey, Nick. Maybe, maybe next time as we approach that red light, maybe we can break a little bit sooner. You know, maybe, maybe that's a good suggestion. Or, or, or hey, Nick, you know, uh, you're going 55 in a 25. I'm not sure what the legality of this is, but you might want to consider slowing down just, just a little bit, right? And sometimes in life, those words, those kind and pleasant reminders from, from uh, your loved ones are needed. But sometimes something a little bit more is needed than just a pleasant reminder. And so this reminds me of an incident that, I had with my mom, uh, parking for me, I don't know about you, but when I was driving, parking for me was just so tough. Like, I knew I could, I could get out and, and go on the road, like, zip around like a go-kart, but, like, stopping was just a mess. And anyway, so, we were in the Party City parking lot, which is in Fairfax now, where the, the Duck Donuts is, and 
I was backing out of a spot. My mom was in the shotgun seat. And for some reason, to back out, I decided to put the pedal to the metal, baby. And we... (laughs) And, and what happened was, all of a sudden, my mom's head jerks forward, and we're just gunning it back to the storefront of Party City, kind of like I forgot something in there. I wanted to go back as quickly as I could. And so I don't know to this day what my mom said, but what I know, it was, it was kind of a, a, a shout, uh, a scream, if you will. I think she was speaking in the heavenly tongues. Uh, we'll go with that. And, and I didn't know what she was saying, but what I did know is what she was communicating was this, was, was my beloved son. You're... You're going, you're going far too fast, and you're going far too fast in the wrong direction. And if you don't slow down, you're going to get all of us killed. That's what, that's, that, that's what that scream meant. And so obviously, obviously we're still here today, and I didn't plow through the Party City parking lot, but, but that rebuke, that exhortation from my mom was born out of love, obviously for herself and her, and her safety, but also for, for me, right? And so the reason I share that is this morning we're looking at a, a, a harsh passage. And, and James here, I would say, is, is calling out to the early church that he's writing to, and he's saying, church, you're, you're going too fast in the wrong direction. And if you don't stop, you're going to cause a, a lot of har- harm to, to yourself and the people that you care most about. It's time to repent. It's time to turn around. And one New Testament scholar said that this is, a, this is one of the harshest rebukes and calls to repentance towards Christians we have in the entire New Testament. These are some heavy words, but they're born out of love, out of, of a deep love uh, for his fellow believers. And so, obviously, we're back in James. We took kind of a two-month hiatus over Advent and the New Year's. And uh, so, a quick recap, who was James? James was the little brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and James ended up giving his life for, uh, for his, his uh, uh, faith in, in Christ in, in 62 AD, and the audience he's writing to uh, are primarily uh, Jewish Christian house churches who were uh, facing severe persecution and poverty for their profession of faith in Christ. And so this is one of the earliest, actually one of the earliest New Testament letters, letters that we have and written to kind of the, the low to mid 40s AD. And uh, as you guys know, if, you've been, uh, if you were here in the fall as we were going through James, one of the primary themes of this letter, James is again continually calling us Christians and the church to live what we believe, to put into practice what we profess. And so uh, I would say that the passage this morning, James offers a sweeping condemnation on, 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 fr- on our friendship to the world. And all in all, I would say this passage is kind of the apex of his exhortation against uh, us not living what we Believe. And so we're going to talk a lot about friendship with the world uh, this morning. And I want to clear up some misconceptions about this before we dive into this passage. And I think for a lot of us, we, we tend to hear this word friendship and just hear it with our modern ears and not put it into uh, the context of, 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 of the time that James is writing it. And so first thing, that friendship with the world does not mean, what James is not saying here when he condemns friendship with the world, what he's not saying is that it, it doesn't mean that you and I can't enjoy creation. James is not saying that we need to live a stoic lifestyle uh, and, and, and not enjoy anything of creation. I believe that, and Christians believe, that God originally created creation good. And we don't worship the created, we worship the creator, Lord. But I believe that I can worship the Lord drinking a cup of coffee, and I believe I have. 
Where in the morning I take a, a sip of coffee and I say, I say, Lord, thank you for the coffee bean. You made that. Thank you for the, the taste buds you've given me to enjoy this. This reminds me of how sweet it is to, to taste and see that you're good. Lord, I believe that, that you can praise the Lord playing a good game of ice hockey. I've done that before. We're just in the middle of a game. Lord, thank you for fun. You are the author of, of, uh, of this activity, of my, of my health and, and of ice and skates and, and everything that entails, right? So James is not saying that you need to live a, a, a stoic monastic lifestyle. That's not what he's saying. We can't enjoy creation. Secondly, when James condemns friendship with the world, he's not saying at all that, that what that means now is, is Christian, you and I need to keep our distance from those different than us. That is the exact opposite of, uh, of what the entire New Testament teaches. James isn't saying, all right, so I'm condemning friendship with the world, so Christians, we need to move to the mountains of Montana, stock up on ammo, build a doomsday bunker, and white-knuckle this bad boy till the world destroys itself. That's not, that's not what he's, he's saying, right? And I think where we go wrong as Christians is, is we, have, we have believed this mantra, I'm in the world, not of the world. I'm in the world, not of the world. And that's kind of like just a a passive approach of like, hey, I'm hands off. I got to make sure I keep my distance because, you know, I don't, I, this is contagious. I don't want to, 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 to look like the world or whatever. And that's not what James is saying here. See, we take in the world, not of the world out of context. We find that in John 17. I'm going to look at this briefly and then we're going to talk about our passage. But in John 17, it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And that's where we get this in the world, not of the world mantra. And uh, I think we need to change that mantra to, to what the text actually says. So John 17, 16 through 18, Jesus says this, They are not of the world, talking about his disciples, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is the truth. Listen, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Christian, I want to challenge us this morning. Our mantra is not, I'm in the world, not of the world. Our mantra is, I'm not of the world. But you better believe I'm sent running full sprint into the world. I'm running full sprint. Just as Jesus Christ died and ran full sprint into our, our, our sin and our mess and to bring about this ministry of reconciliation between us and God, just as Jesus was running full sprint to the world, we're called to do the exact same thing. How dare we? How dare we say we need to keep our distance? That's not what the gospel teaches us. Christ died so that we might live. Now we die so that others might live. That's our mantra. We're not of the world, but you better believe me. We're running full sprint. Everything we got to the world. Because that's our, that's our mission. This is our Savior. This is our King Jesus. Um, so don't, I, you know, don't hear me when, I, when we condemn friendship of the world. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not what James is saying. I think this is what he's getting at. I think two things here. In chapter 3, the last sermon we looked at, James, uh, Jeff talked about chapter 3, 13 through 18, where James uh, threw up two options. Wisdom of the world, wisdom of God. Wisdom of the world uh, is about being a peacemaker. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Uh, wisdom of God looks like gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, considerate. Wisdom of the world, however, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, looks like this. looks like selfish ambition and envy. I want something, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I want what you have, envy, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And, and what James says here, these are hard words, he says, every evil deed and vile practice flows from that selfish ambition and envy in our hearts. So I think what James is saying, friendship with the world looks like a whole lot like selfish ambition and envy. And, and, then, and then he clarifies it too. I would say it's multifaceted, but I think friendship with the world is under this umbrella of what friendship meant in the ancient context. At the time of James writing this in the Greco-Roman world, friendship, that, uh, that word there, uh, implied a sharing of all things, both physically and 
spiritually, kind of look like a marriage. And in that Greek word there for friendship, it's phileia, where we get the word friendship, but also love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that verb in the Greek phileo is to love, is to have deep affection for. So what James, I would say, is getting at here is he's calling out to the church, and he's saying when he's condemning their friendship to the world, I think what he's saying is, church, what do you love? Where are your ultimate passions? Where are your ultimate desires? Because because the truth of the matter is this, is you and I will serve what we adore. You and I will bow down to what we adore. We will serve what we adore. And what James is getting at is our hearts and our affections. And he's saying, Christian believer, what do you ultimately adore? What do you want? What are your deepest passions, your deepest longings? Is 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 it Christ and his kingdom or is it the world? And, and that kingdom. So now we can dive into the text. All right. So uh, point number one is James, I think, maps out the horizontal consequences uh, of our friendship with the world. And this is what he says in verses one through three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So uh, what, we do, what we don't exactly know is what type of conflict was happening, but we do know in the early church, James is addressing a conflict that was going on amidst believers in the church. And he, he, he lobs a softball pitch. He lobs this question to him. Hey, what's causing this mess? Church, what's causing this conflict? And if we were on the receiving end of this letter and we were part of the conflict he was addressing, I think our, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, it, it, probably in the middle of the church, is look at the person that we're fighting with and be like, well, if, if, if Billy Bob over there would stop being such a jerk, we wouldn't have this conflict, Right? He's in the wrong. If he would just change, I would be totally fine. And honestly, if we're asked the same question, uh, if we're in the middle of a, a marital conflict, oftentimes we, we rush to blame our spouse and we just say something crazy like, if my wife just knew when I got home from work, I needed a delicious dinner cooked. It needed to be served to me. I didn't need to serve it. And then once I'm done eating, she needs to do the dishes. And it also needs to be served with an ice cold beer. And then she needs to understand that after work, I need to, to unwind for about five hours on TV, video games, computer, whatever. She needs to engage the kids, put the kids to bed. And if she would just know that, we wouldn't fight, right? It's that simple. And before husbands, you know, you say, amen, preach, Nick. Um, before we get there. James doesn't give us that option. He says the common denominator in each and every conflict you have, believe it or not, is you. You're the problem. You're the problem. And what he's saying is it's not a matter of external circumstance as it is a matter of internal character. It's not a matter of what the, the, the person is doing. It's how, it's how we're going to be responsible for how we respond in that, that, that conflict. And James puts it this way. He says, is it not this? He answers the question. He says, is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Your passions are at war within you. That Greek word for passion is the same word where we get hedonism. So James isn't talking about the good desires to be a good husband or a good employee or whatever. He's talking about these illicit, just self-focused desires that stem from selfish ambition and envy. He's pointing us back to, to worldly wisdom in chapter 3. And he says, these, these, these are just self-focused illicit desires where you are, just, you are just existing to please and serve no one but yourself. And it says these passions are at war within you. So as you're in conflict with your inner man, 
because these passions, there's an internal conflict. There's, always, there's also an external conflict with your fellow man as well. There's, that's a horizontal uh, consequence. And, and basically what those passions look like, I would say, is this is, this is what I want. This is what I want, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I want that promotion. And I know what the Bible says about being honest and not slandering others or whatever, but I need to make that guy look bad so I get this promotion. I want this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And you can fill in the blank for, for what that is. And so James here offers up a, a kind of an interesting solution. He, he's, he, points, he points his audience vertically. And he says, he says, he says this. He says, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. So he's pointing to the church. He's saying, church, listen, you have a heavenly father in heaven who loves you and loves to give good gifts to his children. Ask and you shall receive so your joy may be full. If you have a need, go to the Lord in prayer, church, go to the Lord with your needs. But he calls it like he sees it and he calls out the church and he says, listen, church, here's the problem is you're not only asking for what you, what you don't have, but when, when you, uh, you ask wrongly, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passion. So what was happening, the church, what they were doing is they were seeing prayer as making, as they're seeing prayer not as uh, them submitting to God's will and say, your will be done. They were going to prayer saying, Lord, you exist to serve me and my passions. They're seeing prayer as making God submit to their desires. So God, this is what I want. You exist to serve me, so you better get it done. And that's, I mean, that kind of makes me shudder even saying that. I'm like, can I even say that, you know? But that's honestly, that's kind of what we do. And so, and so when our prayers don't get answered, I think we have this animosity towards God. But I got news for you. If my 10-month-old daughter, Kelsey, came to me and said, I want a flamethrower, Daddy, uh, all the other four, uh, 10-month-old girls in the neighborhood have flamethrowers. Their parents gave them you know, flamethrowers and whatever. I'd be, like, I'd be like, thank you for presenting your request to me, but I'm not going to give you a flamethrower so then you can just go and burn the house down. Right? Let me go talk to Mommy. We'll talk, and then maybe in a couple of weeks we'll get you a flamethrower. But, um, <laughs> but, but not right now, right? I'm not going to give you something that's going to create destruction in your life. I'm not going to give you something that's not good for you. And, and, and that's the heart of God. So I think James would encourage us with our passions, with our desires, to, to go to him in prayer and let him change our desires. Let him change our desires. And next, uh, the, the, so that's the vertical solution, the horizontal solution. This is kind of a tangent to uh, this, but I think, it, I think it's helpful. The horizontal solution is realizing this, that in the conflict, we need to put on godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. See, worldly wisdom would say harbor resentment, harbor hate, hatred, harbor bitterness, because they deserve it. They deserve it, right? The people, people do some really messed up things to us. They deserve it. But godly wisdom says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. And so what godly wisdom looks like horizontally in the midst of the conflict is, I can't control you. The Lord knows I can't change you. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But what I am responsible for is my response. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to prayerfully, with the power of the Holy Spirit, put on godly wisdom. I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to be open to reason. I'm going to be full of mercy. I'm going to be considerate. And as Christ first loved me, uh, uh, and I, now I love him, I'm going to be the first person to seek reconciliation. What do you want? What do you want in this conflict? What do I want? How can we make this work? What do you want? What do I want? How can we make this work? And I, and I got a challenge. The mature person in the, re- the relationship moves first. The mature person seeks reconciliation first. So those are the horizontal consequences. Here are the vertical consequences in verses 4 through Five, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of 
God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So uh, this is kind of a, a scary text, but sorry, one second. Sorry, um, scary text, but what James is saying here is uh, our friendship with the world and us just divulging in selfish ambition and, and divulging in these illicit pleasures uh, and, and that, we, that we actually delight in that aren't godly or of God. He says this creates enmity between us and God. And a simple definition of enmity is a, a, a deep-seated dislike or ill will. A deep-seated dislike or ill will. So I would say that James, what James is getting at is there's a direct one-to-one correlation of the more we move towards with our affections, things of the created, the more we move away from our creator. The more we delight in and love and bow down to the things that are created, the more we despise our Creator and, and James uses two illustrations. One, he uses the word enemy, and then he also uses the illustration of adultery. And I think where we go wrong, where the church was going wrong, is the church thought that they could have it both ways. We love, we we adore hanging out in the middle ground between two camps. We love it. And James is calling the church out. He's calling the church out. And what he equates it to when he says, do you not know that you are making yourself an enemy with God? He equates it to this. It's like a U.S. citizen buying a one-way ticket to Syria, joining ISIS, pledging their allegiance to ISIS. And when they do that, they're declaring war on the West against the very country that they came from. And James is saying, Christian, don't you understand that you're, you're essentially declaring war on God when you move away from him with, with everything you got? That's what James is saying. He's saying there is no middle ground. And when we believe there's a middle ground, what James is getting at is that it's almost like that person in Syria begins to miss uh, uh, pumpkin spice lattes and Nats games and just freedom in general. And so they're like, hey, could I, maybe I'll get a couple round tickets and I'll go back to the States, hang out for a little bit, have fun there, go back to Syria, go back there and go back. And James is saying, don't you know that you've, you, you're, you're choosing, you're choosing uh, the enemy's side and you're, you're essentially telling, saying to God, uh, I'm with these guys now. I'm on this team. I've declared war on you. And, we, and the, problem is, the problem is we don't see our sin that way. We don't see our sin that way at all. We, we, think, we think, ah, grace, cheap grace, God will forgive me, cool, and I'll just, you know, whatever. I don't, there's no change involved. And James is, is bringing the noise, and I'm pre, I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm being faithful to Scripture, and he's saying some hard words, and he's saying, listen, this is, this is a far bigger deal in your life than you, than you and I think it is. And then he says this, uh, all throughout the letter, James has been referring to the church. He's saying, my brothers, my brothers, rejoice whenever you face trials of many kind. And, and he, he shifts his tone here. And for the first time, he, he says this. He says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. And his audience there, uh, Jewish Christian house churches, would know exactly what James is referring to when he uses that terminology. James is echoing the call of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, where we see all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, uh, God is illustrated as a faithful husband to an unfaithful bride, the people of Israel. Israel, And uh, we see that in the book of Hosea, where God commands the prophet Hosea. This is kind of crazy. But he commands the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute and to remain faithful to her as she continually cheats on him and pursues other lovers. And, and, and God uses that illustration. I think it's one of the most beautiful books in the Old Testament. Uh, and God uses that to point out his covenant faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And this is what James says in verse 5. He continues and says, uh, He yearns jealously over the spirit 
that he is made to dwell in us. I think this is just absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And what James is saying here is that the spirit that God has placed within us was meant to be in perfect fellowship and union and communion with his spirit. And he, that, that verb there, that yearning, is a deep longing, a deep desire for your spirit to know you and to, and, to be, and to have you know him. Not that he's contingent upon you. God doesn't need your love. He's not contingent upon your love. But what he does know is he knows what's best for you, and he does love you, and that's uh, giving uh, himself to you. And so he yearns, he yearns jealously over your spirit. And uh, I think a knee-jerk reaction for some of us here, when we hear of God being a jealous God, we're like, that's insane. How could God be a jealous God? Is it, doesn't that make God like a, kind of like a petty junior high girl who's like bent up on a crush that, you know, like her best friend's dating her former boyfriend? Like, how could God be a jealous God? And I want to I counter that with, if verse 5 is true, that God yearns and longs for the spirit he has placed over you, the, the follow-up question is, how could he not be a jealous God? How could he not be a jealous God? And see, we know this to be true. If we're wrestling with this, we know this to be true, where uh, this is a hypothetical illustration. So, uh, but Valentine's Day was Tuesday, right? Hopefully you guys didn't forget. Uh, clearly you guys are awake. Okay, cool. Uh, you didn't forget. You guys are good. You got, Valentine's Day uh, was awesome. But let's say hypothetically, for Valentine's Day, I didn't do this, but I wish I had because it would have been awesome. But um, let's say I woke Jen up and uh, woke her with like 100 balloons, huge bouquet of flowers, chocolates, a nice card, and, uh, and Kelsey was already dropped off at the babysitter. Uh, I got her her chai tea latte, her favorite you know, drink at Starbucks, and I, and I told her, I was like, hey, um, hey, Jen, I took off work. Uh, we got a babysitter for the whole day. Uh, here's the deal. We're going to go on this awesome, awesome hike. It's a beautiful day out. And on the summit, we're going to have this table with wine and chocolates and like a, your favorite meal, you know, whatever. And then, uh, then at night, we've got a blanket. We're going to look at the stars, and we're just going to hold hands and say nice, kind words to each other all night. Um, it's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be a perfect day. You're going to love it. It's, it's, it's your day. And, and what if Jen were to say, oh, my gosh, Nick, that sounds amazing. Uh, my new boyfriend, Chuck, loves to hike. Could he, <laughs> could, he, could he come with us? Right? And as I share that, like, I'm, my emotions are, like, like, you guys, I mean, clearly, you're like, okay, even sharing that evokes this, this jealous, jealousy in me. Jealousy in me. And I would, say, I would say, yeah, sure, bring Chuck along. And when we get to the summit, I'm going to do my best to chuck him off the mountain, right? Why is that? Why? Because I'm jealous for her love, right? See, we've entered a covenant relationship where I said, I'm going to be your husband. You're going to be my wife. When I say I do, it means I don't. To, I'm saying no to love in every other area of my life. God has entered a covenant with his people, said, I will be their God. You will be my people. And what James is getting at is when we say, yes, Lord, I choose you. And then we go to the world and say, yes, world, I choose you. James says that's adultery in the eyes of, of the Lord. That's adultery. And uh, we're all guilty of this. And thankfully, the solution uh, is, is, uh, is provided provided by the Lord. And this is the solution. This is what James says in verse 6, uh, five of the most beautiful words in all the New Testament. But he gives more grace. Oh, that's beautiful. But he gives more grace. And so what's interesting is thankfully our God is not like us. Uh, uh, if we're honest, if, if, when we're betrayed, 
When, when we're cheated on, we demand justice and vengeance and retribution and pain and suffering. You're going to pay for what you did. And so what this text doesn't say uh, in light of our adultery to the Lord, unfaithfulness to his faithfulness to us, the text doesn't say, and God gives more wrath, and God gives more vengeance, and God gives more pain and suffering because you cheated on him. No, what this passage says, and it's beautiful, it says, but he gives more grace to an adulterous and sinful people. And the scandal of the cross, the scandal of grace is this, is, is we give him more adultery and he gives us more forgiveness. We give him more unfaithfulness, he gives us more faithfulness. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of grace. And I don't want to cheapen that. We know as Christians that that grace came at a huge cost, a huge cost to himself. And so what's, what's the value of this wedding band? Nobody shout out numbers. Uh, because it's not that expensive. Uh, but the value, what determines the value of this wedding band is the price that somebody is willing to pay to purchase it. The value they place on it. And so we need to ask the question, what's the value that the Lord has placed on us? What was the price that, that he paid for our ransom? It was the highest price in the entire world, the entire cosmos. It was, it was a price of infinite worth. It was Jesus, Son of God, giving of his, his blood, of his body for you and for I. It's beautiful. That's the price. That's the cost that was born out of love for you and for I. And so if you're here today and you're feeling the weight of this, and you're doubting God's love for you uh, and, his, and his passion for you and his longing for you, just look to the cross. Look at the cost that was paid. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that's the solution. That's, that's our only hope. Uh, and I think where we can go wrong, I think where we can go wrong is this. Sorry, one second. We can go wrong is this, is I think... Uh, there's, there's, there's the indicative of the Christian life and there's the imperative. The indicative of the Christian life is this. This is who I am uh, in Christ Jesus. It's, the indicative is a, kind of like a being terminology. This is who I am because of who God is and what he's done for me, right? We call that grace. I receive this grace. These are all the blessings I have in Jesus Christ, the, the beautiful promises I have in him. But the problem I think where we go wrong is we stop at the indicative and we don't believe there's an imperative to the Christian life. There's, it's twofold. There's an indicative, but there's also commands throughout the New Testament. And what the imperative uh, says, the imperative of the Christian life is, this is who I am in Christ. This is what's been done for me. Now this is what I do because of what's been done for me. See, that grace is a costly grace. And I'm just echoing the words of James here, where if we think that James stops at verse 6, we're wrong. He doesn't stop at verse 6. There's a response that we are to have to grace. In, in, in James chapter 2, he says, faith without works is a dead faith. Christian, if you think all it takes is, is faith, but, you, but, you're, but your life doesn't show evidence of that faith, he says, you are in a dangerous spot. You're in a dangerous spot. So in three verses, James gives us 10, over 10 commands in, in, in three to four verses. Okay, so, so clearly what James, I, I would say, is pointing at is, is he just laid down the, some harsh words on the church, and now what he's doing in these next uh, uh, four verses is he's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to repentance, to come home running to our Savior. And, and this is uh, the, three, the three aspects of confession are, or of repentance are this. One is confession. Two is contrition. And three, it's change. And so confession, 
is with our mind and our mouth. And look at verse uh, 6 and 10 with me. This is uh, the first part of repentance. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So, so I think the first part of humbling ourselves before the Lord is confessing our deep, deep need for him and his grace. And James offers up kind of two responses here. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so what the humble person does in repentance is they, they go to the Lord. They go to the Lord and say, Lord, with the mouth you've given me, I've spoken vile things. The mouth you've given me to praise your name, to speak love to my fellow man, I've cursed you and I've cursed my fellow man. I've spoken lies, uh, lies and, and slander with this mouth you've given me. Lord, with the hands you've given me, I've stolen, I've cheated, I've, I've hit, I've, I've abused. I, I, I've been a fool, Lord, with the hands you've given me, with the mind you've given me, Lord. Uh, I can't even mention the thoughts I have, the bitter hatred and resentment I have, or, or the illicit thoughts that I have, Lord, with the mind that you've given me to steward and to use well. Woe is me, Father. I need your grace. Jesus, would you come and give me that forgiveness? That's what humility looks like, confessing our deep need to God. In contrast to that, the proud person uh, opposes God, and says, as a result, says, God opposes the proud person. But the proud person goes to God and opposes him and says, listen, I don't need you, Lord. I don't need your plan for salvation. I refuse to bow to you. With the mouth uh, I've been given, I've only spoken uh, sweet, beautiful things. With the mind I've been given, I've only thought about what is true, noble, and just. And the proud person says, I have no need to bend my knee anywhere else but myself. I'm king. I'm Lord. And there's one sovereign in the universe. I got news for you. It's not you. But the proud person believes it's them, and they have no need to bow. And so those are the two options that we have. And, and you better believe this, this beautiful promise is when we go to the Lord and we finally see, this is, this is just factual statement, when we finally see our hearts and our minds for what they truly are, that's when God unleashes his mercy and his grace. It says God gives grace to the humble. So the first part of, re- of repentance, of turning back to God, is humbling ourselves before him, humbling ourselves in confession with our mind and our mouth. Next up, the next step of repentance is contrition with our emotions and our expressions. Our emotions and our expressions. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I got to be honest, these are some, this is a crazy verse, right? And uh, what James again is doing is he's pointing his, his, his audience back to the Old Testament. They would understand the reference. But all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel would, would say exactly this. They would say, listen, Israel, you are laughing and rejoicing over what you should be mourning over. And because of that, there is judgment coming. And you should turn your laughter uh, into mourning. And and if we're honest with ourselves, what James is getting at here is that we take our sin far too lightly. Because we compare ourselves with other people, we don't compare ourselves with the holy and just God. And and James is getting at, like, guys, this is is a really big deal. Your, Your friendship with the world, remember, it's, it's adultery in the eyes of the Lord. It's adultery in his eyes. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal in his eyes. So I was reminded of this uh, last week. I was hanging out with my buddies, and uh, one of them pulled up a, a YouTube video, and the YouTube video was essentially this. Someone was in a really tough spot on a talk show, and what they were saying was, was hilarious. Like, it was just hilarious, but they were in a really bad spot. So we ended up doing the rest of the night, and I, I'm chief chief of sinners here, uh, I actively participated in this, was uh, we proceeded to mock that person by, by repeating what they said. 
Because the reason it had so many hits on YouTube was because it was hilarious what they were saying. And then as I was driving home that night, I just really felt convicted. And I, I thought of this verse, and I was like, Lord, what am I laughing at that you're weeping over? What am I, what am I, what am I mocking that should be causing me to be mourning? And so what is that for us? What are, what are we laughing off? Um, and that just, I mean, that, that yeah, that just, that just really... Really, really hit me good. I believe it was the, the Holy Spirit of, of Nick, what are, you, what, are you, what are we laughing at? What are we blowing off? That's a really big deal in the Lord's eyes. And so with our emotions and our expressions, we'll show that uh, we have a repentant heart. We have a repentant heart. And then the next step, and I'll be conclude with this last point, the next step is this, is, uh, is change. Repentance looks like a change of our will and of our works. So just like my mom was shouting, you're going in the wrong direction, you're going too fast in the wrong direction, if you don't slow down, you're going to cause a lot of harm, I change directions. And that's what repentance looks like, is a change of direction. And so James says here in verses 7 through 8, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded and so that word there, when James calls us to submit, uh, he, what he's saying there, submit to God means to place yourselves under his lordship and therefore commit to uh, obey him in all things. And so what that looks like now is you're saying, uh, Lord, I'm not, I'm not uh, asking that you submit to my will anymore. I'm not saying you exist to serve me and my deepest wishes and deepest longings, deepest desires. No, Lord, what I'm saying is I'm coming before you and I'm submitting to your will. Not what I say, what do you say? Not what I want, what do you want? Not what do I command, what do you command? In you I live and move and have my being. Lord, what do you want with this life? It's yours. That's what submission looks like. That's what submission looks like. And there's a twofold aspect, I would say, uh, towards repentance and towards a change of direction that James illustrates here. One is James uses the verb resist. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. A quick side note, Tim Keller, a uh, famous preacher, he says, he says this, when we talk about uh, the devil and demonic forces, we run two dangers. One, we either give the devil no credit at all. We say it's absolutely silly to believe in evil forces in the spiritual realm. Or the other end of the spectrum is we stub our toe and we blame Satan. Like we give him all the credit and say, oh, the devil made me do it. And uh, what we do know that scripture clearly teaches is that Satan's primary goal in your life is to create enmity between you and God and to create chaos in your life between you and God and you and your fellow man. And that comes with Satan uh, allowing you to be consumed with selfish ambition and envy. Satan loves it when we're just absolutely consumed with ourselves. And uh, what James commands us here, remember these are commands, these are calls to repentance. This is how we respond to the gospel. What James says here is he says, resist, resist the devil. And in verse 1 of the same passage, he said this. He said that there are passions that have waged war on your soul. And so I have a question for us, a challenge for us, before we move on to my last point of this morning, is, is church, if we know that these pleasures, these lusts, these selfish, ambition, ambitious passions, if that's even a word, have waged war on our souls. My challenge is, have we declared war on them? Or have you declared a truce? Have you declared a truce? And I got news for you. If you, if you feel like, if you're a Christian, you feel like the Lord is distant. Remember, our union with Christ can never be broken, but our communion, our fellowship is broken by unrepentant sin in our life. If you're feeling like the Lord is distant, I want to challenge you. Is there unrepentant sin in your life that you've declared peace with? 
It's declared war on you. Or are you going to declare war on it? Or are you just going to, are you going to live at peace with that? And lastly, uh, the offensive strategy, and, and I think what James is getting at for us, and, and, our, and there's this beautiful promise that he gives us, is found in verse 8. I love this verse. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Repentance looks like uh, a change of direction from drawing near to the world and the things that this world offers and running full sprint to God with a promise knowing that he is running full sprint to you in that moment. You might be saying, okay, well, how do we draw near to God? Well, we just spent six weeks looking at that through the spiritual disciplines. Jeff just talked about that. It's a beautiful series on, on this is how we draw near to God. Get in his word. Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to him in praise. Go to him by living in community with believers and go to him by using your time, your talents, and your treasures to serve his kingdom now and not, the king, not your kingdom. And so lastly, uh, this this, this promise, this beautiful promise of drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. Reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, and I will end with this story, is this. is uh, You guys know the story, but the story is that there are these two sons and one father is a parable told by Jesus. It's not a true story, but it's an illustration he used. And uh, this one son decided to take his inheritance early from the father so he could go leave home and, and pretty much move to Vegas and, and live the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And so he goes and spends all of his money on things that we shouldn't be spending our money on. And it says in the text that he kind of woke up. He kind of came to himself in a pigsty, reeking of booze and pigs, and, and realized, I've made a huge mistake. This promised me life. This only brought death. I need to repent. And so, and so he starts walking home. It's a beautiful story. Absolutely beautiful picture of the gospel. He's an adulterer. He's declared uh, himself an enemy to his father. But you know what? In, in a repentant, in a contrite heart, he decides to walk back to his home, to his father. And you better believe, obviously this is a story, but let's imagine for a second, that as he, each step he's walking back to his father, he's wrestling with these questions of, man, does my, does my dad hate me? Like, I, stole, I pretty much stole his money and embarrassed him. And, and what, is he going to slam the door in my face when I get home? Is he going to demand I pay him back, pay what I, what I pretty much stole from him? How is my father going to respond? And, and what the story says is as he's, he's walking back to his, his house, the father sees his son from a distance. And instead of slamming the door in his face or, or, or yelling at him to, to leave here that he's not wanted here, what we know in the story is, is the father runs full sprint, full sprint back to his prodigal son and embraces him, wraps his arms around him, puts on, put, puts on him a fine robe, nice jewelry, and tells his servants, hey, we don't have much money left because he spent it all. But hey, you know, let's, we're going to throw a party. Let's, let's cook some steak, fine wine. We're going to celebrate the, the return home of this prodigal. So if you're here today and you're doubting, doubting God's heart and his longing for you, that's it. And that's the promise we have. That's the beauty of the gospels. We can come home uh, 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 an adulterer and he embraces us every time as we come to him with repentant and contrite hearts. That's the heart of our Father, and that's the promise we have this morning, is draw near to God as he is running full sprint to you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, that in spite, of, in spite of our disloyalty to you, you remain faithful and steadfast in your love towards us. We, it's unreal that, that you would do that when we don't deserve that, Lord. So would you forgive us, Lord? And I pray, Father, Holy Spirit, that if there's anyone here feeling the, the weight uh, of, of the direction they've been going recently, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you help them repent? Would you help them turn back to you? 
Would it be a sincere repentance? With a contrite heart, Lord, would they change directions? Would they come running home knowing that you don't give more wrath, you don't give more anger, you don't give more uh, uh, pain and suffering? What you delight in giving is mercy. So we praise your name. We, we thank you, Lord, that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, what you have done on our behalf, that you delight in showing us mercy. And that's our only hope this morning. So we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.